All right, everyone. It's me, Brahm. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, if you're an investor or you hang out with investors, you probably hear the term due diligence thrown around quite a bit. Oh, make sure to do diligence on this. Uh, we're doing due diligence in this company. Oh, how do I do diligence on that? But what does the due diligence process actually look like, especially as applied to psychedelic companies? And how does a VC fund like Empath actually conduct due diligence? Well, today's guest is here to shed some light on that process. Today's guest is Samantha Tabone. Sam served as the Vice President of Research and Development for Pure Minds, a neuromedicine startup that develops novel psychedelic therapeutics for neurodegenerative diseases. As an independent consultant, she's led projects for leading psychedelic companies, including Beckley SciTech. She's advised family offices on life science investment strategies, and she's worked as a strategic director at several biotech startups. Sam and I started working together a few months ago, and I'm super stoked to officially announce that Sam is joining Empath to lead our technical and scientific due diligence process. So Sam, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm definitely excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be good. You have a lot of um, interesting things to say about due diligence, and uh, I think we're going to talk about just how you approach it, how you break it down into these different categories of team, scientific foundations, IP, product development, and strategy. And I think we're also going to talk a bit about sort of the philosophy of due diligence and like what's the maybe right way to approach it, not from a sort of hard, you know, perspective, but more from just a philosophical, like what's the goal? What are we trying to accomplish in like the grand scheme of things way? But um, before we get into all things related to due diligence, um, let's just talk a bit about your background and like how you ended up doing this sort of thing and how you gained all this experience doing due diligence, especially on psychedelic companies. Yeah, it's a great question. I get asked that quite a bit. I mean, so, you know, I, I was in academia for a while um, doing chemistry. And after I left the University of Toronto, I was a chemist in manufacturing for a while. And it wasn't long before I realized that the bench just wasn't for me. Uh, I didn't feel like I got a lot of intellectual autonomy. I didn't feel like I was actually applying my skills to try and change something. Um, and, you know, I was supporting operations at functions. So I think that might be why. Um, but at a very early stage of my career, after I quit being a chemist uh, a year later, I started helping really early stage companies in Canada kind of transform their ideas into some kind of business plan. And at the time, I was learning how that kind of worked as well. Um, and so over time, seven and a half years later, I've accrued a bunch of experience at different companies, different stages, different value propositions. Um and, you know, I, I've kind of learned a lot along the way from my involvement with a family office as well. Um, and one thing I realized is that, you know, a lot of people need due diligence for sure on the investor side. And I've worked in the capacity of performing technical due diligence for VC funds um, in the past. But uh, on the other hand, companies actually need people to come in and do due diligence on their stuff too before they start shopping to investors. So over time, that kind of became my sweet spot. Gotcha. So almost doing an analysis of the company itself so that they can sort of maybe anticipate the types of questions that VCs are going to be asking, how to make sure that they're sort of uh, ready for prime time, I guess. Does that sort of maybe the right way to think about it? 
Yeah, I'd say so. And I mean, keep in mind, a lot of the companies I had first started working with, they didn't know what a data room is or or was, I should say. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of these companies, really great scientific minds, um, sometimes, you know, a little bit hesitant to try their hand at business because they're not sure what to expect. And so I started with really, really early stage organizations um, and, you know, trying to anticipate what they're going to be asked for in, in a data room situation is something that I started to help with too early on. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll definitely get into all that and talk about data rooms and everything, but just kind of going back to your background a bit, I mean, what sort of chemistry specifically, like did you do in academia? And um, I'm just a little bit more curious about that. And like, I know you did a master's program or started one, like what, what sort of things did you learn in those programs? Yeah, I mean, so I started in a full-blown chemistry program at U of T and at U of T, if you do a specialization, which trumps, I guess, a double major, you're kind of taking everything. So I spent about three extra years just doing my own sort of rotations between a medicinal chemistry lab, um, an analytical biosensor development lab, and a digital microfluidics lab. So, you know, the traditional drug development stuff that we see quite a bit in psychedelics would fall within that med chem category. But, you know, I also kind of did some other interesting work with um, nanoparticle scaffolding and um, assay development with miniaturized labs on a chip. So very interesting stuff. Yeah. So I'm guessing maybe not all of that applied to the work that you did later, like at Pure Minds and at Beckley and everything, but the medicinal chemistry probably certainly did, at least to some extent. I'd say so. But, you know, I think getting that other experience was important for me to understand how different types of specialists and different scientists Um, work. So I worked with engineers in one lab, and then I worked with um, more biologists in another one. And I think it gave me a better idea of how to be a good generalist in science um, when it comes to communicating with technical experts like the PhDs and postdocs. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the business, like scientific-based businesses like drug development, I think being a generalist is probably pretty valuable and that being a generalist is kind of the antithesis to what you're trained to be if you pursue a PhD or in something right, which is where you spend however many years learning everything there is to possibly know about a very, very narrow set of subjects. And you might be the world's expert in that thing, but when it comes time to, you know, maybe talking about something slightly different, you may not know much more than someone with say a bachelor's or a master's. Is that kind of the right way to think about it? Or what, what would you say? I mean, I, I think the capacity for knowledge about a subject, it doesn't trump. I mean, it's not as if, you know, somebody with a master's or a PhD will have the same level of knowledge of a subject. But I think what it comes down to is the ability to, I guess, apply experience as well. And so with the PhD route, a lot of students stay in academia for a long time. And it isn't until they're done that they go out into a work environment where they're working with teams. And so where I think that, you know, someone with a bachelor's or a master's could very well have the ability to go very deep into a subject in the STEM field, for example, and communicate well, it really depends on how they've applied themselves. So that's a long winded way of saying, I think that there's definitely certain decisions and certain concepts in drug discovery that you need PhDs to lead. Um, And I think if you're looking to assess or vet a prospect who doesn't necessarily have a PhD, you just have to spend time working with them. Um, 
So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a tricky subject because I think that now we also have access to so much information very easily. And so there are a lot of self-proclaimed experts that actually don't have training in certain methodology, um, certain types of method development. And so there's also the, the contrast that you have to be aware of too. Um, so it's, it's difficult to talk about actually. Yeah. I, I, I see what you mean. But so maybe one question is, I think to a lot of people that are not technical, like right. People that are not scientists, maybe just regular investors or whatever, they kind of, um, just see PhD and they immediately see legitimacy and they might incorrectly assume like, Oh, well, if someone doesn't have a PhD, they're not necessarily as well qualified as someone with one that just automatically will go for that credential. So you, as someone who has worked as an independent consultant for a long time, have you ever had anyone give you pushback on like not having a PhD and do you have to sort of educate them on like why it's maybe not that big of a deal for the type of engagement that they're proposing? Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. I've definitely experienced that. I mean, in a way, I don't blame individuals who have no exposure to any kind of scientific training that, you know, they're going to assume you have to have a certain uh, advanced degree to complete a job. But um, a lot of the time, it's more about highlighting skill set and and function um, and, and roles and, and clarity around that. And so I do spend a lot of time Instead of educating, I just spend time working with them and, you know, communicating with experts and, and trying to be complementary to existing teams is good. But I've had people at different VC funds just flat out tell me like, hey, we really love the work that you do. But um, for this role, like this role up here, you're just not competitive if you don't have a Ph.D., so I think that, you know, there are different schools of thought, which is fine, but it depends on what the function is. If you're vetting experimental design, you should have a PhD in that area. <laughs> I mean, there's no question about it. But, you know, technical due diligence is a lot more than just that. Right, right. It covers all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so what in your roles, um, for example, like when you were the VP of research and development at Pure Minds, like what kind of stuff were you doing for them? Because I know that was kind of your most recent um, position. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, I was working from a very early stage in the company's genesis to kind to try and kind of you know develop a strategy around what existing assets there were, and so um, when once things started going and, and more people joined the team, I was kind of a functional interface between the chief scientific and chief medical officer. And, um, you know, much like some other companies in this space, Pure Minds had a discovery platform, but they also had a clinical program, um, which required a lot of communicating between the basic research team, so the discovery team, and the clinical dev team. So that translational interface, not just translational science, but literally from an operations perspective, trying to bridge those gaps and help, you know, everyone kind of see where certain products will fit. Um, a lot of that was taking the technical information and ethos that the core scientific team wanted to bring and working with the CMO to see if, you know, it fit a target product profile, um, if, you know, it's our operations supported it. So I talked to our director of labs. Um, and so it was kind of like literally being a translator, yeah. uh, which was fun. <laughs> yeah. I bet. 
And what I'm sure that gave you a lot of exposure to as well is the types of failures that can occur outside of just the domain of scientific failure. I think a lot of times when people that don't have a sophisticated understanding of like what the technical due diligence process looks like when evaluating a company like this, their immediate thought is that it's just looking at sort of the science and being like, does the science check out? But I mean, in many ways, like the science checking out is maybe just the first step on a very, very long road to actually getting a product developed. And there are all sorts of operational failures, communication failures, um, knowledge gaps in the team that can cause a program that might be based on solid scientific foundations to fail. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think first and foremost, scientific concepts and ideas, even if they have you know, been initiated and launched in the, in the form of a program, there's still just that until you're able to execute. And a lot of the time, not just, you know, at some of the companies that I've been with recently in the psychedelic space, but even traditional biotech and medchem companies that are spinning out from academia, a lot of the time, it's the team function that is really what you're trying to assess. So like you mentioned, knowledge gaps, but also the ability to organize the programs and prioritize funds uh, and budgets. You know, I think one thing that scientists don't have a shortage of are really great ideas. And I think in making sure that the R&D portfolio doesn't get too big, whilst also simultaneously, you know, maintaining a fiduciary duty if the company has one at that point, or trying to raise is a really tough balance to strike. Mm-hmm. And we've seen the consequences of that play out in the public markets. Like I think, if I'm not mistaken, a Thai just recently cut like most of their drug de- drug discovery programs, not just development. Sorry, they cut most of their discovery programs because their portfolio was just too big. And um, at a certain point, you have to just decide what are you going to focus resources on. Um, and so some things have to go. And, you know, probably would have been better if maybe they weren't at it in the first place, but who knows? (laughs) Yeah. And again, that's something hopefully that we'll talk about today. That's kind of unique-ish to the psychedelic space right now. But um, getting really excited about a pipeline is normal. Um, But, you know, I think personally, I feel that there's a lot of really rich discovery work that has yet to be done in the psychedelic science space. And... um, Having a lot of these programs publicly cut and having, you know, communities lose faith in where this is going is something that I hope changes with maybe positive news and new biotech companies as well. Um, But yeah, yeah, definitely have to make sure you're not putting too many preclinical candidates on your pipeline. Sure. And so when you, that was sort of a good overview of what you did at Pure Minds. I know you did some work with Beckley and a few other psychedelic companies. Can you talk a bit about what you did in some of those other engagements? Yeah. So, I mean, generally I can speak on a few of the things I've done, which really just involves me kind of coming in and assessing not just from a technical perspective, but from a commercial perspective, whether or not um, an addition to a pipeline or a portfolio of R&D work is feasible. And it's it's kind of like this overarching high-level strategic approach initially, but then you do take a deep dive and start looking at different elements of market access and market comparables, but also understanding on the technical side if the scientific uh, foundations are sound. And so what I mean by that is, for example, at a lot of these companies, if you know they had a unique... They, they thought yeah, a unique um, 
let's say, drug delivery system. You would take a look at who the inventors are and you take a look at the contracts to see if they're exclusive. I mean, these are things that you do in normal due diligence. But a lot of the stuff that I was also doing was performing literature reviews. So ensuring that, you know, there weren't any other more um, appealing technologies that could outcompete that one. Or if there were, you know, what steps to take to mitigate those risks sort of thing. Got it. That makes sense. Well, sounds like you probably learned a lot from that stuff and um, super cool that you kind of have gotten to see. There are certainly things to be said about having, you know, like a single longstanding, you know, role at a company, but being able to sort of hop between these different companies and kind of get a glimpse of, you know, what different folks are working on is probably really interesting and informative. And you kind of have some inside scoops, which is kind of awesome. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk maybe about the due diligence process more broadly. Um, So for people who don't know, people that are not investors on the private side, here's kind of how this usually works. This is, these are sort of the high level steps of doing a deal. So someone, whether it's the company themselves or another investor will forward you some sort of presentation. We use the term deck. I'm not really sure why, but deck seems to be the the phrase that (laughs) these things are called. Um, A PowerPoint presentation, a PDF, and it's usually just a high level presentation, maybe 10 or 20 slides that is not confidential, doesn't give out any secrets, but kind of presents at a high level, you know, what a company is working on. And you look at that deck and you're like, okay, this is maybe worth having a quick 30, 40 minute intro call with the team. And so you have that intro call with the team and they kind of go into a little bit more detail. And then you decide, okay, this is actually worth digging into. We kind of like what these people are working on, but now we need to basically take a peek behind the curtain and really dig into the details. And that's where we're going to decide whether or not this is an investment to make. So the next steps are usually you have to sign an NDA or a non-disclosure agreement. And then you get access to the the mysterious data room, um, which is where most of that's where the real work kind of begins. And for those who don't know, a data room is basically just a folder, usually containing many other folders that have all sorts of things related to the company in it. It could be anything from um, high level product development strategies to sometimes it even includes very specific chemical formulations, synthesis steps, folders full of um, literature that kind of lays out the scientific foundation for what they're doing. It might have contracts with any con- contracts for any sort of contract research organizations they're working with. It, it's, it's endless. Um, and they vary in size and shape depending on like with the stage of the company and this and that. But you basically spend a bunch of time digging through the data room, answering some questions, and then usually formulating a list of questions that you then go back and have a second, much longer call with someone from the technical team at the company. And then from there, you kind of need to make a decision. Maybe you get one more call. But usually these deals move somewhat quickly, and you also don't want to be constantly annoying the company with you know, email after email with, oh, what about this? What about that? You know, we want to respect everyone's time and try to do things as efficiently as possible. So what that means is that in the interest of being efficient and respectful of everyone's time, you really need to have kind of a framework against which you evaluate a data room. That way you can pull all the pertinent questions, figure out which questions are actually meaningful and which ones, you know, maybe are interesting in a theoretical sense, but not that meaningful in the grand scheme of things. Um, and have that framework against which you analyze the data room. 
And I know that Sam, your sort of framework is broken down into four different bits. There's sort of the, the team, there's the intellectual property, there's the scientific foundations, and then there is sort of the product development strategy section. And all four of those are important and we'll go deep into each four, but just at a high level, like let's say you get access to a data room, what's sort of the first thing that you're looking at in there? Like where, where do you go to first or maybe the most two or three most important things that you look for? I mean, it's hard to say. So obviously a deck is nice to have. And if I haven't seen a, a non-confidential deck, um, I look for that. But looking for a more in-depth deck that is focusing on like the scientific value prop, sometimes some companies will kind of you know, showcase that in a separate deck specifically. Um, but a deck that is outlining and aligned with the current raise that I'm doing due diligence for is what I look for immediately. Sure. Um, I, I admittedly... So what that means, sorry to cut you off, but just okay. like if this is a Series A deal, you're expecting a lot more detail, a lot more organization. Yeah. Whereas if it's a C deal, maybe you're a bit more lax on uh, the content structure and everything. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and I mean, you'd expect that w as the company that you're, you're vetting, um, as they kind of increase in complexity and, and they're, they're increasing at the stage that they're supposed to be at. So, you know, even at the venture growth stage, if they're going for a series B, you'd expect to see that kind of scale a little bit in the data room, but sometimes not as much. It depends on how many assets that they have currently with which they're valuing the company against. So um, I look for that. I also look for a term sheet, even though that's not technically what I need to look at while I'm doing technical due diligence. It's usually for people performing financial DD or the investor. Um, and I look in the IP folder to see if any patents have been filed right away. Got it. So that's, may that's maybe <laughs> yeah. number one is like, have there actually been any patents filed? Yeah. Or are, you, you do sometimes get on these calls with people and they kind of make it sound like they have some IP and then it's like, oh, we're actually filing next week or something, you know, and yeah. next week turns into next month. And uh, <laughs> it's Exactly. Like, so yeah, you want to see that something has actually been filed. And do you feel like, just on a meta level, is there anything you can learn just sort of by maybe the structure of the data room and maybe the uh, level of organization and thoughtfulness that the company put into the data room that maybe gives you some insight into maybe the organizational thoughtfulness with which the company itself has been organized? Um, yes. You can <laughs> almost like how you, you can just take a look at someone's room and like depending on how orderly and clean it is, you get a sense of like that person in some ways. Maybe, or is, there, is, is there anything like that or is that too kind of woo-woo? I, I try not to be so punitive when I see a, da <laughs> a data room that looks a little bit out of whack just because I know that most people when they're putting together a data room, they're usually quite busy, especially early stage companies. But yeah, I mean, depending on, so some data rooms exist with a higher level of security than others, which to me, you know, means that the company is serious about protecting the information that's in there. Um, you know, so not just over a Google Drive, but maybe there is a password protected or even NDA protected data room. Um, other elements of, of what I see in a data room that can be, shocking are a bunch of uploads that are really close to the date of the ask. So if for whatever reason, you know, um, I go into a data room and all of the uploads say added, you know, two days before the call, um, it's a bit alarming to me uh, in that, you know, a company would go and start uh, discussing investment before actually having a data room prepared. 
uh, or it could mean that they've prepared a custom data room for the investor sure. that I'm working with. Yeah. So, I mean, it's or, hard I mean, to it go could also it. just be that <laughs> we were one of the first investors they talked to, you know, it could be that too. True, mm-hmm. true. But, you know, I think I've seen some data rooms where they, there's a company that had claimed to be, um, working on stuff. And this is actually quite common, but their operations folders that they, that they are willing to show, um, are like six to 10 months out of date. So, so, so now you're talking about the flip side, like this thing's 10 months old. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we've so, seen this actually in some yeah. of the companies that we've looked at where everything is like over a year old or something. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to read into too many things too quickly just because I think it can throw off, um, your, your bias, if you will. But like, I mean, obviously if you have a nice organization to your data room, it's easy to navigate. Um, you know, if, there's a folder that says IP. I'm going to find everything related to an IP strategy in there, for example. Um, those are, I think, pretty standard things. Yeah, that makes sense. And is there anything that if it's, is there anything that if missing is an immediate red flag, like something that you think is a must have that maybe you've seen missing before that always maybe makes, you know, the spidey senses tingle a bit or? Yeah, like financial information. Like if there's no, if there's no financial plan, you think that's kind of, I think it's been there. Yeah. And also if there, and when you say financial plan, you mean probably more on like the budget side, like, right. So we're raising 5 million. Where's that 5 million going? Yeah. 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 That's a, a, a big one. I think not seeing any kind of scientific rationale, especially for biotech and pharma companies, usually there are strategy documents or commercial analysis documents on the opportunity that support the endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, there are usually so text might heavy. Be, sorry to cut you off again, okay. but like when you say that, do you mean sort of, okay, we're going after a therapeutic for irritable bowel syndrome. So you want to know like, what are the numbers related to that indication? What are all the different drugs that are currently approved? What are their sales? That kind of thing. You're expecting to see some kind of like comp breakdown like that. Yeah. I mean, there are tons of um, databases online where, you know, if you pay for access, you can pull up this information quite easily. And most of the time you can see it in a, in a deck too. But if I don't see something that's in a little bit more detailed supporting the opportunity, yeah, exactly yeah, what you said. That makes sense. I, yeah, it's a bit concerning. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, that that you would hope would be in the deck, right? Because that's not really confidential to the company. But one thing that is kind of funny in general is when you're investing in tech companies, usually data rooms are pretty sparse. You know, people will oftentimes just have a high level deck. They assume the money is just going to go to engineers and advertising and, you know, maybe they don't have like these detailed breakdowns of all these different, you know, all these different things that they're going to do. But in biotech, it almost seems like the opposite. It's like the amount of detail is just overwhelming. It's kind of funny how different it is from just regular like software investing. But I think it um, depends on who's advising on the curation of the data room on the company side. Because I've seen I've seen a mixed bag, but for psychedelics specifically, given the market conditions now, I think that it's pertinent that everything you need to show is included in a data room to stand out. Yeah, totally. I mean, we're recording this in the end of September, and you know the market is near its twelve month lows, at least looking at like the broad indices like the S and P, and uh, most investors have definitely increased their sort of quality threshold, I guess, if you want to say it that way, meaning that they're probably doing a lot more due diligence than they were 
you know, last this time last year. So all of the T's must be crossed and I's must be dotted if you want to raise funds in this environment, which means your data room better be tight and clean. Um, so maybe let's get into the specifics. Uh, the team is the first thing, and you can oftentimes start assessing the team even before you get into the data room. But um, at a high level, like what are some of the key things that you are looking for when we're talking about analyzing a company that's doing some sort of drug development or drug discovery? Um, there are a lot of different questions I could ask here, and I'll get into some of them, but I just kind of want to hear your sort of high-level thoughts. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's important to understand what the organizational structure is. Usually for early-stage companies, it's really rare that you see something super hierarchical, like usually very matrixed environments where people are working on project teams cross-functionally is what you usually like to see. But if it's very early stage, you might not even see that type of organization. But just generally looking at, you know, the experience, the educational qualifications, and the different roles that are given to these individuals of the people on the team, um, and trying to generally just understand what's on their R&D discovery Gantt chart that they're going to try to execute in the next two years, and seeing if there are immediate gaps that stand out right away. Um, you know, the other thing too, I think that that doesn't necessarily seem so intuitive is trying to check for contract status. So are these individuals independent contractors? Are they working part-time, full-time? What does the resourcing really look like? Um, and if on contract, how long is the term? Um, so those are the things that I kind of start with right away. Yeah, this is something that I feel like you see a lot in the early stage drug development companies where it's like you look at the pitch deck and it'll have the team slide and it'll say this person is the chief scientific officer and this person is the chief medical officer. And then it turns out when you dig into the data room, the CEO is the only one that is actually employed full time and this chief medical officer and chief scientific officer they're actually professors at wherever and they have a thousand dollar a day day rate and they're working like three days a month or something for the company. Like I feel like this is pretty common to see this sort of, this sort of thing happen. Um, how do you, is that necessarily a bad thing? I don't think so. I think it's pretty normal. I mean, a lot of the time, some of these high profile individuals that are both on, you know, C-suite board, uh, C-suites, uh, boards, and even scientific advisory boards, they're juggling multiple engagements like this at a at one time. Um, and so in a way, it is quite normal to see. However, if there is uh, a crazy milestone ahead in the next year that the company is claiming to be able to meet, but they don't have any full-time staff, it's a bit more concerning at that stage if, for whatever reason, you have like more than a few C-level executives on payroll. Um, so so it's, it's a really strange balance. Uh, but the whole advisory board discussion and like paying people to be beyond decks is a huge controversial topic <laughs> in this space too. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of like you know in biotech in general, it's pretty normal. But I'd say if I were to look at a psychedelic uh, deck now, I'd be a lot more um, a lot more specific with what I was analyzing. You know, just to make sure that these people have time to contribute to the company. And also that, you know, assuming the company ends up being successful, you would kind of hope that eventually they would get a full-time chief medical officer or a full-time chief scientific officer. And so 
maybe one of the things you want to look for is, is there a plan or maybe a set of conditions under which these people will leave or take a leave of absence from their professorship and join full time? It might be as simple as as soon as we raise this $5 million seed round, I'm actually jumping ship and coming on full time. But oftentimes those things are not really laid out. You have to kind of specifically ask about them, right? Yeah. Or, you know, if you really go through the contracts that should be in data, data rooms that exist, you can look at options agreements that are kind of put alongside with some letter of intent uh, with an independent contractor agreement that showed like the future of this individual. Um, and if the, if the individual is there temporarily, you know, who else they're after and who, who else they plan to install in, the, in these roles. Um, usually, you know, that, that could be a thing too. Sometimes CEOs change at a series A round. Um, it's actually quite common in some instances, depending on what the product is. So, you know, um, Pre-Series A, it's pretty normal to have a lot of ambiguity around that. Yeah. And another thing to look at in addition to these sort of part-time C-suite type people is also just looking at not only who the advisors are, but what other advisory positions those people have. I remember you and I, Sam, just like two weeks ago, we were looking at a situation where there was an advisor on a deck and you also found that that same advisor was on like the deck of another company that was working on something kind of similar. And like, you know, you can sign all the NDAs you want, but knowledge in someone's brain is going to leak out into other contexts. That's just how it works. Right. And so is that maybe something you want to check out too? Is like, are these advisors maybe consulting for, I don't want to say the competition, but like kind of the competition. Yeah, I, I think you know, I'm sometimes quite confrontational and I've had situations where on an investor's behalf, I go and ask directly, you know, uh, hey, I see you're on these uh, different advisory boards. How are you taking any kind of precaution to ensure that there aren't any conflicts that arise? And I've had some really great answers. There are some really well-organized individuals, but I think when it comes to individuals who may or may not be sponsoring research agreements with companies, you, that's where it gets a little bit tricky because they themselves also have labs that they conduct work in for some of the companies they're involved with. So it's definitely something to look out for. Um, I think probably this was a lot more pertinent about a year ago when there was a huge rush to the market. And, you know, even having people on your deck could make a difference, uh, both privately and publicly. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so another sort of t big controversy maybe around teams is this idea of maybe insiders versus outsiders. Um, a lot of times people will say things like, if I'm investing in a drug discovery company, I want the CEO to be someone who has a track record in pharma, who's brought drugs to market before. Obviously, it's easy to see why that would be a good thing. But how important is that? And like, sh how do we... We obviously want to make room for outsiders, right? People that kind of come in with fresh perspectives, maybe a track record in an adjacent industry. But how do you evaluate someone who maybe doesn't have a background in pharma, but otherwise seems like a smart person? Um, like, how can you tell if that person is qualified to lead a psychedelic biotech startup or not? It's a good question. You know, I've met a lot of CEOs and founders who don't have any experience in biotech or pharma that show real intention and capability to learn quickly because they want to. Um, and I think a lot of this, when I'm assessing, you know, whether or not, let's say, um, a CEO that's coming from the tech space, for example, 
uh, would be able to run with the psychedelic strategy for drug discovery. It has to do with team dynamics, as I mentioned earlier. So maybe understanding how they manage their team and trying to get them on calls with people from their scientific team is usually a way to understand um, how that dynamic arises. And usually, you know, there are times where I've seen CEOs kind of let their scientific team lead, but then they support them um, in different ways. And I think that's really great. Um, just kind of being acquainted with humility, like all of us should be on teams and, you know, not having to own everything and kind of letting the different people with different strengths on their team help guide the company cohesively. And so I think, you know, obviously a basic understanding of scientific principles is great, but you don't necessarily have to be a PhD or even someone from uh, a STEM background in university, let's say, to really kind of grasp the concept. Um, Managing your team is, is super important, especially when you have a lot of brilliant people working with you. And, uh, you know, I think it's difficult sometimes to keep up with the thought processes on R&D team meetings when people are just constantly spewing out new scientific ideas. So so it's like, it's obviously overwhelming. And I think the team has to try and help out too. I I think you're right in general. Like we definitely encountered some CEOs that did not have any sort of like scientific or biotech background, but who you can tell are just really trying their best to be students of not just the science, but students of their teammates. And that I think is always a good sign. Of course, this is not something that you can really pick up from the data room. This is something you have to pick up kind of just when you're talking to them on the phone and um, everything. But yeah, that's definitely something you want to look for. Yeah. I kind of also want to mention too, like it's almost as if you need a different type of CEO at different stages of a company. I know that, that that's probably not a popular opinion, but the CEO is managing other teams as well. So it's not just the scientific team. So obviously having a, an understanding of business in general is great, but um, a CEO transitioning pre and post IPO, I mean, your, your responsibilities completely change. And so what I would be looking for at a, in a CEO at a seed series, a series B stage is different than what I'd be looking for at a, a series C and beyond than into the IPO. Sure. Um, yeah. Sure. That makes sense. Um, yeah. I mean the fact that like people talk all the time about the fact that Mark Zuckerberg was the founding CEO and is still the CEO. And the only reason they talk about that is because it's such a rare thing. Usually CEOs do change as the company evolves. Um, Other things that a CEO might have in their background, I mean, we've talked a little bit about how there are certain industries where if the CEO or the team comes from one of these other industries, maybe it's like not a red flag, but maybe a flag, maybe a yellow flag. (laughs) I don't know. Do you want to talk about like some of those industries that kind of pique your attention a bit or... Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely be open about it. I myself yeah. have worked in the cannabis space, so it's easy for me to say it openly. Um, I've I've seen, you know, different archetypes that move through different waves of hype, and cannabis was definitely one of them in Canada. And so it, it wasn't uncommon if you try and, you know, even if you took half an hour and looked at all of the publicly listed psychedelics companies on the Canadian Securities Exchange and try to see if any of those founders were involved in cannabis before I can guarantee that like a majority of them were. <laughs> so it's not a red flag or per se. I'd say it's a yellow flag just because 
when cannabis was, you know, pretty intense in Canada from an investment perspective, a lot of the same practices that we see today with some of the early psychedelics companies um, were really common. So things like, you know, um, not having a clear structure for the valuation of a company or, you know, putting too much of an emphasis on certain assets. Um, And so, you know, it's not that it can't be done, but I also think that there are so many dualistic themes that exist in psychedelics already, like natural products versus synthetics or enthusiasm versus very clinical and medicalized. I think that there's a connotation that comes with being someone from the cannabis space that is now moving into the psychedelic space that unfortunately you kind of have to work against when you're in a position like such as leading a company. Um, But I will say that, you know, there are some great people from the cannabis space who really believe in the power of plant medicine as a way to kind of give hints uh, about future future drugs to be developed. So it isn't a, a huge generalization, but definitely a yellow flag. I mean, you know, different hype, uh, different hype scenarios other than cannabis and psychedelics in Canada before were like solar and you know uh, fintech, and so this kind of happens in all the time. It's not just specific to psychedelics. Yeah. I think what you kind of want to avoid is someone whose resume is like four years ago, they were doing the thing that was hot four years ago, two years ago, they were doing the thing that was hot two years ago. Last summer they had an NFT startup. Now they're doing psychedelic. You know what I mean? It's, it's fine if maybe they're involved in one or two of those things, but there are definitely certain types of people that are kind of hype wave riders or hype wave surfers maybe. And, um, the main thing that I pick up from that is not that these people are necessarily bad or that they're like not good at their jobs, but rather that they're not in it for the long haul because the minute the next hot thing comes up, they're going to jump to that thing and they're going to leave the company, you know, without a leader or something. And so, and maybe this is a good bridge into another somewhat controversial subject. And this relates specifically to psychedelics, but, um, should founders in the psychedelic space have a long personal history with psychedelics or is it okay for someone to just kind of realize that psychedelics are a cool thing now and to start working on them? Ooh, that's a really tough question. A highly debated topic. I mean, I personally find it intriguing when I hear founders talk about their stories, um, and their transformational experiences. Mm Um, however, not to be fooled, I do think that there are some individuals who talk about experiences in such a way that aren't as authentic. So, so There's I mean, that too. that's true. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, um, there are a lot of scientific individuals that see the potential of psychedelics through the data that don't necessarily have personal experiences, but being to decipher and tease out you know, who the true believers are, are, if you will, in the psychedelic renaissance from those who are just trying to make a quick buck um, can take some time, definitely take some time. But, you know, I think that it's important to hear stories uh, of personal transformation, just so that, you know, there is a little bit more authenticity that's built into core values of some of these uh, organizations. And I think, even stories from people who have been in clinical trial participants as well are, can be just as impactful. Um, you know, I had a chance to speak with 
uh, John from Apollo Pact, and his experience really made me understand that there is some significant, you know, opportunity here to really change the way uh, we treat mental health uh, mm-hmm. conditions. Yeah, and I think the answer to this question also depends on what the company is actually trying to do with psychedelics. So, for example, if the company's goal is, you know, we're going to treat crippling depression with psychedelics, it would kind of make sense to me to see a CEO that had personally maybe had some serious depression and treated it with psychedelics versus, let's say, maybe something a bit more theoretical where someone's like, you know, psychedelics are really powerful anti-inflammatories and a lot of the causes of aging are like downstream from inflammation. Maybe there's like some really crazy deep tech research we could do on like psychedelics as anti-aging agents. Maybe that's, you know, I don't know that that person necessarily needs to have like done five grams of mushrooms in a dark room to, you know, do well with that. But I think especially the closer you get to some of the um, mental health related indications, the more important the personal experience um, becomes a critical, maybe. I yeah, know. I'd say so. I'd say mm-hmm. so, especially just even for uh, neuropsychiatric therapeutics development in general. I think there still exists a lot of stigma around uh, mental health conditions and mental illness. And so, you know, you'd be surprised sometimes you see. Um, people in leadership positions at different companies that actually don't support the cause. You know, you, you meet them at a party after party of a conference and you hear them say something really offhand about, you know, um, some of these conditions. And so um, I, I agree with you. I think that's definitely true. I, I also think that, you know, kind of piggybacking off of what you said earlier, um, Sometimes you'll see a lot of CEOs that kind of try to connect themselves to the cause. And it can be (laughs) really, really obvious. Um, And it can kind of be distasteful, especially when you have an organization of individuals who are super passionate and personally connected to the cause. Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, a few more things on the team, and then we're going to jump in to some of the other stuff. So another thing that you see a lot on these pitch decks is the founder is some professor academic and now they're jumping ship from academia and they're starting a company is the ex-academic turned founder a good thing a bad thing or does it depend on the situation Uh, it totally depends it totally depends on the academic career of the individual um usually i think it's really beneficial if an active ceo has ties in academia Um, But there is a certain threshold where, depending on what stage the company is at and how well they're doing, it it almost seems like it doesn't make sense if this ex-academic is still in academia because they're unable to fulfill their duties in academia bandwidth-wise. Well, so let's I think say it, let's say that they've left academia, or they're on a you know leave of absence, and they're okay. starting you know an early stage company. So this is an early stage pre-seed or seed company, and the founder was up until three months ago a full-time academic. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a bit concerning given that if, if they're on a research sabbatical, they're going to have to return. If they're taking a, a leave, this is where the questions start to come in, right? They could be helping launch a company um, and then maybe their intention is to kind of transfer their role to like a chairperson or a scientific advisor chair um, position. But at some point, you know, if there is a potential for them to transition back into academia, 
even in a part-time capacity, you'd expect that they're actually mentoring someone for that leadership position. Most likely mm. they are. Uh, sure. That's usually the case. All right. Well, I feel like that covers most of the things on the team section. Was there anything else you wanted to point out about teams, what makes good leaders, et cetera? Just like respect. I think that's something that we'll talk about later in the space in general, but having respect as a foundational tenant on your team, you know, it's not specific to biotech at all, but it's something that I do look for um, as well. It's not a diligence checklist item, but it is just something that I pay attention to. Yeah, I see what you mean. All right, so I guess the next thing um, is going to be the intellectual property. That's going to be sort of the next big category of due diligence. So we've gone through the team checklist. Um, intellectual property, this is kind of a big mess and can be very, very complicated to figure out what's actually going on, um, dep especially depending on what stage the company is at, right? So a company that's doing like, new chemical entity discovery, they have a very, very different intellectual property story than a company like, you know, Compass, who is you know, just developing psilocybin as a treatment for a very specific indication. But in this case, I think we're probably mostly talking about companies that are developing new molecules. Um, so what's sort of just at the high level, what are you kind of looking for there in, in the intellectual property department? Yeah, I mean, usually at that stage, there may already have been an external hire for a consultancy involving IP strategy development. So usually you'll see um, like a, an attorney's letter about existing IP, um, patent filings, you know, even data that's going to support a, a patent filing that is in progress. You know, a, a lot of companies will discuss that they're going to be filing seven patents in the next two years. <laughs> so, you know, even if those are active in term, uh, active in development and they haven't been filed, just to see the data that's supporting it and the planned claim. Um, and then, of course, there are scenarios where there's already been some in-licensing. And so when that's the case, just understanding that there's... You want to explain what in-licensing is just for people oh. who don't know? Yeah. Okay. Good idea. Um, yeah, it is a bit interesting. I mean, typically you can also, so there are a few situations where if you're an academic and if you own an invention that you developed in your lab, let's say, um, you can transfer ownership of that invention to a company, but there are also scenarios where companies have already kind of built up some intellectual property in the form of a new chemical entity. And there are scenarios where new corporations or relatively new corporations will spend money on in licensing that asset from the other company exclusively for a specific use, let's say. And so that gives them a rights to use that invention from the other company in a very specific manner um, in such a way that they can kind of recapitulate all proceeds. But there are fees that go along with it. So the original inventors still get some royalties. Yeah, that I feel like we've seen some examples where um, the company has maybe in licensed some technology and or whatever, like and like you said, it's usually for a very specific purpose, but they don't really 
on the high level deck or when you're talking to them, they don't really mention that it's specifically for that purpose. They're just like, we have this thing. And then your mind goes to all the different possibilities and how this could be this massive thing that covers so much different, so much ground. But in reality, they they actually only can use it for this one specific thing. And you kind of have to dig into the data room to realize that. Yeah. And not to mention, you know, a licensing agreement is great. It depends on, I mean, you really have to assess how much work the licensee has done to develop it into a new asset. If they haven't done anything, there's still a long road ahead. Uh, so usually it's not optimized at all. So, uh, you know, I think for sure that's a situation. And, and you're kind of like when you look in the data room, you have to look for the chain of custody to ensure that there really is a licensing agreement there because there could also be letters of intent, which to me are kind of meaningless. Right. Uh, yeah, everyone it's has non, a different opinion. It's not enforceable, right? Yeah, Generally. yeah. So what does it mean? Um, so many things around IP. Um, you know, one thing that's not on our list that I think would be interesting to just kind of discuss at a high level is when we're talking about inventing new molecules, like you as a chemist, Sam, like what do you think about all these companies that, you know, they're making a very small tweak or just adding you know, maybe a single like atom subst atomic substitution or just something very, very simple. Like technically that's new IP, right? Yeah. And there have been, there have been examples of very successful commercial drugs that have used very, very simple tweaks or substitutions. But, um, is there a part of you that wants to see maybe more ambitious, um, undertakings when it comes to developing new chemical entities? Of course there is. Um, yeah. I, I truly respect the business opportunity that comes with making small adjustments and filing new IP. I mean, the drug development life cycle and the industry itself has kind of evolved in such a way where you are incentivized to do that. Um, my concern, if we're talking about like the serotonergics specifically for 5-HT2A, which is a huge huge endeavor that many people are undertaking right now at the same time. My concern then becomes these serotonergic compounds, which are psychedelic, you know, if everyone is evolving this drug development candidate at the same time, what happens when one then is actually approved and physicians who are educated start, you know, uh, in the psychedelics arena, start prescribing off-label I feel like there will be a limit to how many Me Too drugs that can exist for the 5-HT2A receptor specifically for specific depressive disorders. So, of course, I like to see creativity. Um, it's really exciting when you see a deck that has a company claiming to have compounds that have certain characteristics but have a completely new pharmacophore. Or a core. What's a, what's a pharmacophore for the non-scientists out here? For the non-nerds? Yeah, <laughs> it's basically a part of your small molecular entity that generates pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic activity in the body when you take it. And so it's usually the part of the molecule that um, has the most activity with receptors of interest or your drug target. Um, you know, they bind to the receptor at a specific site. Um, and usually there's a, a certain structure that you see for different classes of compounds. Right. 
So you've got like the tryptamines, the phenethylamines, those are the standard ones. And so if a company comes along and says, hey, we've got something that is not a tryptamine and it's not a phenethylamine, like that is something interesting, right? All of a sudden, versus we took a tryptamine and we added like this little thing over here on the side. Yeah. Well, it depends on what drug target they're going after. Because I also find it interesting if someone were to tell me, hey, I have a second generation phenethylamine um, and you know, we're going after a, a, a GABAergic receptor for a certain indication. We're not going after a serotonergic receptor. Oh, that to me is interesting. So hitting a different receptor, yeah. Yeah. It is weird and it's tough because obviously you want, just from like a scientific curiosity standpoint and also from an IP standpoint, you want something that is like as different as possible. But at the same time, you look at, for example, DMT and then 5-MeO-DMT. They, the structures are really, really similar. Like they're not that different, but sub, the subjective effects, I mean, they couldn't be more different drugs. And so I think it is also important to like recognize that just because maybe a drug is developed with like this little small tweak or this little simple substitution, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's only slightly different from a subjective perspective, right? Totally. I mean, now though, if I do... And the reason why it's, I guess, a little bit more alarming to see that strategy kind of now is because at this stage, I'm assuming that all of these different companies, these discovery stage companies, have synthesized tons of libraries that cover all of these basic tweaks already and that are protected in some kind of provisional filing. Right. Okay, so let's talk about that. So maybe it's not just about subjective, it's about the fact that someone else might be working on the same thing. So um, you, you'll be able to explain this better than I can, but basically someone files these provisionals and no one else gets to see what's in these for basically 18 months, right? So it's like they file it with the patent office and then the only person that knows about it is the people that invented it and the patent office. And then 18 months from now, once the patent is like approved, then it kind of gets made, put out into the public domain, right? And then anyone can kind of go and see. But for that 18 months, it's like, there's this shroud around it. And so you might be sitting there in your lab synthesizing some stuff and tweaking these molecules. But little do you know that like three other companies have recently filed provisionals that actually cover that thing that you're working on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is that, is that the right way to just kind of explain maybe what happens with the IP filing process? Yeah. So, I mean, there are so many topics to discuss here. And usually I'm limited in what I can do because at some point you do need like a professional, like IP attorney to come in and do the vetting depending on the deal size. Right. But I mean, so not just that, it, it, there's not just the risk that somebody else may have filed a provisional that you're unaware of and might not be aware, uh, aware of until 18 months down the road. But even if you do file first and claim what you would assume to be prior art, from the discussions that I've had with several attorneys in this space, somebody can still kick you out if they have better resources and provide better data that's more specific. So if you just file to file and you don't file any data afterwards to support your claim or you file the bare minimum to support your claim, you still run the risk of being able to own rights over that patent if somebody else can come along and show more specific bioactivity. So there's different types of patents that exist in the biotech space, and I think they hold different weights. And so like you have a product, a patent or claim, which is considered the most 
superior because you're dealing with new chemical entity status. You're not only claiming like the uniqueness of the structure, but usually like the synthetic pathway. You can also there's a composition of matter patent, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. That that can go along with it, but this product claim is just like this umbrella term for a new chemical entity that I've been exposed to. There's also the product by process. Have you heard of that one? Uh, tell us about it. So that one is kind of like within this umbrella of a product patent or claim, but it, it has to do with kind of like semi-synthetic uh, or naturally derived chemicals from natural sources. And so you could also achieve um, novelty in that manner. Um, is is and then, this what uh, GW Pharma did with Epidiolex? Initially. And then, yeah. of course, they had to they had to kind of come up with their own um, mm-hmm. tweaks to it. And I think eventually the formulation changed a bit, too. So mm-hmm. they probably had a series of patents for Epidiolex. Um, but we yes. We should say for people that don't know, so Epidiolex um, is notable for a few reasons. It's a drug that treats seizures, I believe, specifically in young people, if I'm not mistaken. But few things that are interesting about it. It's one of the few FDA-approved drugs that is based on any sort of cannabis product. It's like a CBD product. And it's also one of the few um, FDA-approved products that is based on extraction. So they're not, I believe they're actually extracting CBD from plant matter, not synthesizing it in a lab, um, which are two things that are pretty rare. I don't think there are too many cannabis-based FDA-approved drugs. And there are also not too many FDA-approved drugs that are not synthesized. So, yeah, yeah. And, and it ended up being acquired by Jazz Pharmaceuticals for some ungodly sum. I mean, it was like seven or eight billion. <laughs> um, it was a lot of money. Exactly. I, I mean, that's still, the semi synthetics still hold weight. I mean, what, what it comes down to, and I have this, this is another tangent we can go on, but like natural product versus nutraceutical versus semi synthetic, natural chemical, it's a whole can of worms. Um, But, you know, most people don't realize that a semi-synthetic process, even if you're starting with a natural source, is a synthetic process. LSD is semi-synthetic in most cases. Um, So some people can synthesize it like completely 100% synthetically, but there's also a way to drive LSD semi-synthetically too. Hmm. Um, Starting with what's like a ergot or something like a mold. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's that. So that would be, I guess, an example of like a product by process claim, which is still quite strong. Um, but again, full disclosure, I'm not an, uh, an attorney at all. So it depends on, I guess, the regulations in your jurisdiction too. Sometimes it might change between um, like Europe and, and North America, I think there are a few anomalies, but, um, then there's of course, like your formulation patents. So I guess in the way that you're formulating the API, the active pharmaceutical ingredient, which is usually the NCE once it's been proven to be useful as a potential drug. Um, and then your method of use, which is, okay, you know, this product is being used for this indication area. I'm now going to file a claim that this product can be used in this new indication area. And that is the weakest patent. Right. And this is what I would say maybe 70 to 80% of psychedelic companies that we see are trying to do. They're like, we're going to take psilocybin and we're going to use it for like a very specific anxiety disorder or something, you know? And it's like, they're just taking the same psilocybin that everyone else is working with. 
and they're trying to get it for some indication. Yeah. I mean, the way to do that from a business perspective is if you have a really complex and technical delivery system that you can get strong IP around for a formulation patent, then sure. Um, But you have to do a lot of work. You have to prove that this new delivery method is actually better than whatever else is out there, right? And I think that might be a pretty tall order in many cases. Tall order, especially if you haven't raised money and Mm -hmm. if you don't don't have um, the resources. I mean, you do need to perform a lot of pharmacokinetic studies in general just to get a drug through. But with with this type of endeavor, you have to do like bioequivalent studies um, and then compare that data. So, so you basically costly. have to say that, okay, not only did we take the ketamine and put it in a nasal spray, but here's the PKPD data that shows that the nasal spray delivery is actually significantly different than the lozenge delivery or something. Got it. So it actually, not only is it a a different method of administration, but that method of administration is actually meaningful different. Like once it gets inside the body, do you, do you get the sense, Sam, that like, because, because the FDA, you know, probably wants to minimize what they're going to term abuse of psychedelics, that these sort of advanced delivery technologies will be a big part of whatever FDA approved pharmaceuticals we'll see over the next five to 10 years. Maybe not in the case of, let's say compass pathway psilocybin, which is administered in a clinic and you basically get handed the single pill. But if we ever see FDA approved microdosing, like, are they just going to hand people a bottle of 30 psilocybin pills, which would mean that you could just take all 30 and have an experiential dose? Or are they going to give you some sort of abuse resistant delivery mechanism? And I'm using the word abuse, of course, not because I think psychedelics can really be abused, but just because that's what the FDA is going to call it. Yeah, definitely think I I definitely think that some of these more advanced delivery systems will be attractive to the FDA for that reason. But I also think that from a pharmacodynamic perspective, right, I think that these new cutting edge delivery systems may actually provide a clinical advantage to patients, too which is exciting. So, I mean, in terms of the therapeutic regimen, when you're using psychedelics as an adjunct to psychotherapy, some of these delivery systems offer advantages. And the one main obvious one is like, you're not being injected intravenously, which I think, you know, some people who... With ketamine, for example. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely a benefit. Um, As far as what the FDA is going to approve, again, a whole other can of worms. Uh, sure, no idea. Sure. Yeah, it's gonna take, we won't we won't know for a long time. I yeah. think the first couple FDA approved products like psilocybin and MDMA are just going to be standard capsules. Yeah. Um, one thing that's interesting that we've seen when we've gone into some of these data rooms is, you know, we sign the NDA and we get in there, and then the parts that are the most interesting, like the actual chemical structures that they claim to be filing IP on, that stuff is like redacted. And so even though we've signed the NDA and we've gone in there, still have no idea what what they're actually working on. And, you know, usually what you see instead is, like you said earlier, a letter from their IP attorney that says, yeah, we did all the work and this stuff checks out and it's legit and uh, they have freedom to operate. What do you do in that situation? Do you just kind of say, okay, well, I guess we just have to listen to the lawyer. Um, Do you push really hard? I guess unless you're maybe the dominant investor leading the round, it's hard to really force them to 
show you anything. Um, how do you think about that? Well, you know me, right? Yeah. I well, just keep asking know. questions. Yeah. No, you have to get really specific with your questioning. And I think doing a lot of investigative work, um, which, you know, one of the interns at Empath did a really great job on recently. I yeah. think, you know, getting really into the the weeds with what their strategy is in terms of lead optimization can give you clues as well. Right. Um, and also but, asking those um exclusionary questions, I guess. Yeah. Well, okay. You want to tell us what it is. Yeah. Can you tell us what it is? Well, not? What it's not? Is it this? Yeah. Is it that? No, it's not that. Okay. Well, that narrows it down to this other set of things. Uh, yeah. It's important to know, but I think at some point you have to accept and absorb the risk because sure. even still, you know, there are so many exciting companies like Delix Therapeutics who have this great capacity to synthesize NCEs with very specific characteristics from a like neurobiological perspective. And so who knows what else they're working on? It could be something completely unrelated to psychedelics that have psychedelic activity or psychedelic like activity. Um, so when I see the word psychoplastogens, that's also something I think of right away. There is not just Delix, but many other companies that are dedicated to doing this. Um, so when I see it redacted, okay, I mean, if patents are in the process of being filed, I get it. If it's something that's truly unique and you're in a space such as this one where there's a lot of competition, um, then yeah, maybe I can also understand it. But It makes sense why they wouldn't want to share yeah, it because yeah. like I said, you can sign all the NDAs you want, but stuff still you know, finds a way of information likes to be free. Yeah, there um, are certain companies who also have enough cash flow to just like quickly run a few assays with something similar and like file a patent, which then, you know, infringes on your unique area, your freedom to operate. Um, but, you know, there are tools to like that a lot of different groups use to try and showcase the uniqueness of what they have without giving away the structure. Right. Right. Yeah. So they might, for example, they might show, um, the results of some assays and show how, and they might show the same assays run against psilocybin or LSD and show how maybe they're still hitting 5-HT2A, but they're hitting different receptors that are still important in very different ways than psilocybin or LSD, for example. Yeah. Showing blinded preclinical data is like really effective, especially if um, the results look good. The data, the data, you know, should always be shown truthfully. And I think you know, it goes without saying that you wouldn't expect a whole family of new chemical entities to show superior activity than psilocybin. It's usually going to be a mixed bag because as you sagely mentioned earlier, small tweaks to a molecule like adding a methoxy group to a tryptamine ring can dramatically change its activity in vivo. So, you know, there's different things to consider for sure. Definitely. Um, okay. Last thing on the intellectual property front. Um, one of the things that I learned from you recently was this idea of, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but the Tanimoto matrix and how that applies to um, IP search or freedom to operate search. Like, how, What exactly is that and how does that work? I think a lot of people probably are not familiar with that term or the concept. Yeah, it's, it's like an ad hoc tool. I was actually pleasantly surprised to see it in one of the um, data rooms that we were in. Uh, but basically, it's kind of like, you know, a coefficient. 
you know, in, in mathematical theory, how you can have like a union between two variables, you can have an intersection. It's literally just like the ratio of the intersection between two variables over the union. And there are really unique ways that chemists have applied this theory to chemical structures so that you're able to kind of compare and contrast your chemical structure to different classes of molecules. And usually it's done actually to show that your NCE has similar activity that, uh, to a class of, let's say, anti-epileptics or something that would support your case for pursuing that NCE as an anti-epileptic drug, for example. But in the case of the, uh, I call, let's say, serotonergic drug development, so for 5-HT2A, um, one could see this being this concept, this tool being applied to show that their unique compounds are not like or right. not close in structure to some of right. the ones that we commonly see. So just to be just to repeat what you said um, to back to you to make sure I understand it, like basically there's this thing called the tiny moto coefficient, which is some measure of similarity or distance between two molecules. And you take a bunch of these different scores between all the different possible pairs of the, of the molecules in interest and you put that into like a matrix basically. And so then you can sort of look and see that it's sort of like a distance matrix where um, you can look every, every, every like row and column is basically going to be the distance between those two um, compounds basically. Yeah. I mean, the reason why matrices are relevant in NCE drug discoveries, because usually you're synthesizing so many compounds in a library. So you'd have that on one, you know, area. And then you'd also have um, whatever compounds that you were trying to compare it to. So in this instance, maybe you would have like anti-epileptic drug type A, drug type B. And so wherever the percentage is the highest, that's where you have the most similarity. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what's cool about that, if you do, if you do it, so it's like a square matrix where like all the drugs are on both the columns and the rows, then you can start doing like weird, like eigenvector decomposition and you can start seeing like these clusters of different um, yes. molecules and how similar they are and like that sort of thing. I don't know. Oh, I'm, sh I'm sure people are doing that. Linear algebra discussions. The last time I talked about eigenvalues <laughs> and eigenvectors was like quantum chem mm. <laughs> <laughs> we could get super granular that would be fun definitely yeah might be a bit out of scope for the, <laughs> yeah, the podcast. Yeah. But, yeah. but yeah the point is then you can start running all these like basic machine learning algorithms and just see like what chemicals um or sorry what molecules are alike which like little different affinity groups are there you can probably uncover all sorts of interesting hidden structures in, like, yeah the molecular universe there are also some groups that are taking it to the next level and actually trying to integrate DMPK data and like ADME data about these compounds into those types of matrices. And so I don't know if you want to talk about the whole AI buzzword and yeah, in silico that would be buzzword. Cool. Let's do that. I don't think that was on our list, but that's definitely, we can't, how can we not? not? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, there are a really there are a lot of unique ways to computationally treat data and um, kind of show how you might be able to get unique leads and insights into drugs that might effectively bind to a target, let's say, more so than another without having to spend so much money on performing like wet lab experiments. And so this has kind of propagated this whole in silico movement. Um, <laughs> 
I don't know if you want to you want to say something there. I have a lot to say. No, I think I would say, first of all, to anyone who wants to listen to a whole hour discussion on this, I interviewed someone by the name of Sam Bannister, who's the chief scientific officer at a company called Silo on my podcast. You can find the episode. And basically, we talk about AI drug discovery for probably 80 or 90 minutes. Definitely worth a listen. Um, but, you know, I think it's interesting to just note that it's, it's almost more rare to see a pitch deck these days that doesn't mention AI than one that does. Um, everyone claims that they have it. Everyone claims that their approach to it is unique in some way. Um, maybe it would be worth highlighting, like, what, what are some of the questions that you might ask to determine whether or not some company's AI strategy is actually anything interesting or unique? Or does it just mean that they're using the same computational tools that everyone else has these days, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first question I'd ask is, are you generating data to feed your machine? Basically, that's the first question. Because there there are people who have claimed to be creating novel uh, machine learning techniques, but they aren't. They're just using in silico strategies that employ molecular docking software. And right. so when I yeah, ask that question, sorry, go ahead. yeah, no, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say that is one thing that is funny is like half the time these people claim they have some sort of AI thing. And then you ask what they're doing and they're like, well, we have the model of the receptor and we have like a billion molecules. And then we just one by one run them through that predicted like uh, receptor or through that receptor model. And I'm like, well, that's not really AI. That's just like a loop. <laughs> Yeah, Basically. I, I, um, yeah. there are some groups that actually are trying to like feed machines that they're, they're building in pilot mode, which will take a long time to generate value. But in the short term, if you're using computational techniques to like deduce dis- decisions in your decision tree about which drug to move forward with, it's basically like another assay, just virtual. But you're not getting conclusive data because there's always like this risk that you run the risk that, you know, it's it's an imperfect system when you perform these types of assays. So like um, it's a virtual assay in my mind, but there's a tool called Swiss Admi that's free. It's an open source tool where you put in the chemical identifier of your structure and it computes values that would tell you whether or not it's druggable. And so even just performing that exercise alone, I've seen people use that as a premise for saying they're using AI. When you say druggable, you mean, is this going to cross the blood-brain barrier? Is it going to be like all of those different categories? Okay. Yeah. And, you know, give some really detailed information about predictive Mm -hmm. values uh, around physical chemical properties. It's certainly not any sort of novel AI. It's just this is a tool that's out there and someone just ran a bunch of stuff through it. Now they're saying they have some special AI. Yeah, but you know, there are groups that mention trying to integrate multi-omics data um, and patient-specific data into their AI endeavor, which is literally a huge endeavor and undertaking that will take a couple of years to even start getting anywhere. But that type of stuff is very interesting to me because then you're talking about actually analyzing not just the structure itself, but you know, the different crystal structures simultaneously and the different ideologies of disease and trying to stratify patients. So, I mean, better. So, I mean, like it's a very complex idea, but 
in theory, it could be very revolutionary for CNS drug development. And do you want to tell people what multiomics data is? Yeah. So um, actually, during my time at the company I was with most recently, I learned a lot from the scientific team there about this. Um, So multiomics data basically refers to data generated from um, genomics uh, assays, transcriptomics, proteomics, epigenomics. And this is all data that is specific to patients uh, or healthy subjects around their, their unique biological makeup and relevance to a disease. And so genomics data will tell you what somebody with a specific type of Alzheimer's um, will have in terms of like their genomic expression. And a lot of the time with complex neurological disorders, not just neurodegenerative diseases, but neuropsychiatric uh, situations as well, you have very specific subsets of disease that aren't classified as separate conditions, but they're just lumped into this umbrella of like you know, epilepsy or whatever type of epilepsy that you're looking at. So in reality, diseases are actually much more complex than just what we know. We're just limited in our ability to know how specific a disease, like a characteristic or um, disease etiology can be. And so schizophrenia is a good example of that. I mean, there's probably several types of schizophrenia that we're unaware of right now, but until we perform these types of multi-omics assessments using some tool that I hope becomes available to to all of us, um, we won't be able to get specific. And so this kind of relates to the predictive validity issue and translational issue with drugs and clinical trials that don't work. Um, yeah. And it sounds like a lot of this multiomic stuff really only comes into play once you start hitting the clinic, like when you were talking yeah. about a preclinical drug discovery platform. Uh, you can't really do multiomics analysis without patient data. Like that's yeah. Some so. people have access to patient data sets already that they're using to better understand how to run their drug development program too. Got it. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk. Is there anything else on the intellectual property front? I mean, we talked a bit about the AI stuff and how maybe sometimes that's BS, sometimes it's not. I kind of just want to go back to the thing that you mentioned at the beginning, where you said, "Are they generating, you know, novel data to feed their machine?" And I think just to expand on that a little bit, any sort of machine learning algorithm, for the most part, or AI, whatever you want to call it, doesn't really work without large data sets. Um, and unless you are, you know, using some sort of novel and large data set to train some sort of algorithm, you are probably not doing anything that someone else couldn't also do. And so maybe just to like put a bit more weight on what you said, like if a company tells you that they're act- they have some process for generating some data and it probably can't just be the data from like one or two assays that have been run past, you know, a couple of different molecules, it probably needs to be a very large screen that was done in some way and it needs to be done in a way that's like not easily reproducible by the competition and then they're training a new sort of ai model on that proprietary data set that is not only unique in composition but also of substantial size to lead to be actually generalizable they probably don't have much yeah that's kind of the way i that's the way i think about it and Um, hint hint nudge nudge if there aren't any engineers on the team then how you know that's another thing too, but yeah, you, if, if someone, if they don't have anyone on the team that has experience 
with at least some kind of um, you know machine learning, probably at least a bit of an academic background in machine learning, um, it's probably going to be tough for them to make any real progress. There's still a lot you can do with what's publicly available. And uh, one of the things that Sam was telling me about on the other Sam, Sam Bannister, um, on, the, on the podcast that I did with him is he was saying, well, use the same software as everyone else. But for example, your model of the 5-HT2A receptor might be better than like we, you kind of develop your own proprietary model. And that, that's better in some way based on some insight you have. Those types of things can be small, but still lead to big advantages um, once they're compounded over you know thousands of rows of data. So I guess buyer beware when it comes to AI um, or also recognize that at this point, in some ways, they might as well say that they're powered by like Excel or Microsoft Word because these tools are so ubiquitous that it's almost like meaningless, right? Um, so yeah, <laughs> all right. So let's jump onto the uh, the scientific foundations. Um, obviously, a company says, "All right, we're doing something new with whatever molecules," and here's like a bunch of papers that prove that what we're doing is a good idea. Like, what do you do with that? Oh, it's so fun, but it takes yeah. time. Um, yeah. I mean, so first of all, understanding very clearly what it is that they're trying to do from a scientific perspective is important. So like what I mean by that is, are they developing candidates that are 5-HT2A agonists? This is what we see all the time. Um, or are they trying to develop, you know, um, I don't know, a, a BDNF, you know, modulator that does X, Y, and Z. So the basic claim needs to be scientifically sound, which is, I think that's pretty obvious, but sometimes you, you can't be too careful. Um, and, and then just making sure that off the bat, you know, they aren't trying to tie an indication to a drug target that hasn't been validated. That yeah. is a huge one um, that I think is overlooked quite a bit and leads to leaky pipelines. Can you give a, um, can you give a sort of specific example of that? Like, what does that actually mean to the so, layperson? I, I guess I'll give a really extreme example. Okay. But like, so you know, different drug targets exist in the body, and um, you know, a lot of them in the brain are very well studied. But unfortunately, some receptors are a lot more well studied than others. For example. And so 5-HT2A is that one receptor that's getting a lot of attention because it has been validated to be linked to modulation of neuropsychiatric disorders, such as major depressive disorder. And so if an individual were to come and say, well, I have this drug that, that is an agonist of 5-HT2A, and I'm going to link it to Alzheimer's disease or irritable bowel syndrome, Right you have to show that you're going to generate data to support this. But from a clinical development perspective, this in theory wouldn't be a validated target for these diseases. And so the central nervous system area of drug development is kind of limited by not just the drugs that are created, but also the biomarkers that are developed and the drug targets that are validated. And so like we can't continue to evolve CNS drug development if these all don't co-evolve together, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see what you mean. So yeah. it's like, not only do we need new drugs, but we need to start connecting receptor activity with some kind of like diagnostic endpoint, basically, or yeah. some actual medical endpoint for the patient, rather. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and right now the only thing that's been like really validated is that psychedelics seem to have some effect on you know depression and anxiety and PTSD when combined with therapy. But some of these other more theoretical ideas like irritable bowel syndrome, anti-aging, um, Alzheimer's, like there's maybe some evidence there and maybe a couple yeah. papers that you can kind of, if you squint hard enough, you can see it, but it hasn't been proven, you know, beyond any reasonable doubt yet. Yeah, you'd yeah. be surprised how many archived provisional patents that have been abandoned for psychedelics mention a whole slew of other indication areas, mm. but they're just abandoned because no one was able to provide data that support it, supports it. And so there's this argument on whether or not this archival like uh, chain of custody, if you will, for ideas is relevant or not, because people were just trying to land grab the use of these novel psychedelics across a whole bunch of indications. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, so the, the literature review can show you various things. It might show you that um, the connections are a bit questionable. Um, it might show you that it's pretty well validated. Um, one of the things that you see in a lot of these um, academic studies that are you know, part of the you know, scientific foundations folders or even some things that these companies do in-house and put in the deck are all sorts of different animal models. Um, so there are certain things like the head twitch response, head twitch response, which for those who don't know is basically you dose a mouse with some kind of psychedelic and if their head twitches, that means they're hallucinating. Supposedly that one is actually pretty well established. Like if the rat is twitching, they actually probably are hallucinating. Um, but some of these other things like, um, I actually don't have any specific examples, but some of these animal models of like, oh, we like sliced open the rat's brain and we saw that there were like some increased neural connections here or there. Like those, those models generally don't translate too well into humans. Is that correct? I mean, it depends. So what you're describing sounds like, you know, uh, an activity assay to see that, you know, this drug is actually doing something and having some kind of result. It kind of like, you know, the head twitch response, but therapeutic efficacy models specifically. So these are the animal models where they're designed to actually show and indicate that there are that, that this drug is meeting some clinical endpoint when mm -hmm. dosed to it, an animal, those actually have really poor right. um, translatability. Uh, especially when it comes to like neuropsychiatry, right? Like depression, yeah. and anxiety, and these things that people want to use psychedelics for. So when a company comes to you and is all excited because they did these rat studies, like, do we just ignore them or do like, is there anything we can glean from them? Um, I mean, I how, think. How do you, where do you weight, weight those things? I think it's commendable for groups that have perform these, um, studies because it's pretty much all that there is. There isn't much else that we can do, especially if you're trying to progress a psychedelic through the medicalization framework, which requires an IND filing, uh, an right. investigative new drug filing. So you have to do that. The FDA is not going to give you that IND unless you've no. done the animal studies. Um, they're not going to let you jump straight to humans. So it's kind of a necessary, evil is maybe not the right word, but yeah, it's a necessary <laughs> thing that has to be done. And then you just, so how can you, is there a way, given the fact that, um, you know, these animal models don't seem to translate too well, um, is there a way that we can kind of predict whether or not these things are actually going to work well in humans or is a lot of it just a guessing game? I wouldn't call it a guessing game. I think that's where the literature, literature review comes in handy. 
Um, if you go too far into history, like, I mean, the methods and the inclusion and exclusion criteria for clinical trials, let's say, have changed dramatically. So you might not be able to glean too much beneficial information from doing that type of a deep dive. Um, but, you know, paying attention to, um, I guess, new filings and breakthrough designation cases that have existed with the FDA is, is specifically pertinent in this scenario because, you know, there's always a chance that you can go to first in human if you really want to um, without having to perform too many excessive therapeutic efficacy studies. You have to show or you have to have a history that this drug is safe in humans. So if someone else has done it already, there is this chance. Yeah. But the problem is if you have a unique formulation and a unique uh, composition of matter, then you have to do it all over again. And so this is where people have kind of got stuck in this. Well, what do we do for our, our clinical pipeline right now? But I mean, in terms of predictive validity for translatability, like it's very difficult to say what I'd like to see are more companies focused on developing better models. Um, but unfortunately, the return models for, to predict the yeah. translatability. Okay. Models to predict the translatability, but also therapeutic efficacy models, or even just better um, to develop bio, better biomarkers that can lead to better therapeutic mm. efficacy models. There's it's a tough, right? Because stagnant. if you, you can invent a new biomarker, but unless that ends up getting validated probably hundreds of times by different independent sources, no one's going to place any weight on those biomarkers, especially like at the FDA when it comes to getting something approved or not, right? Well, so biomarkers would really actually just be like an, uh, something in the body that's a measurement to indicate that there has been some efficacy achieved. And so you would need new technology to kind of figure out what that can look like in the future for CNS disorders and neuropsychiatry specifically. But in, in fact, with biomarkers and models, the more those models and biomarkers are independently validated, the better it is because they're new, they're, they're exploratory. So it's a bit of a conundrum, but like for a, a pure biotech company to come out and say they're focused on you know, developing better models, the financial incentive isn't as great because obviously it's not like a traditional drug product. Um, so I think that's why we've seen kind of drug development rush ahead without these other elements co-evolving at the same time. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see. On the subject of scientific foundations, is there anything else that you think is kind of critical to touch on there? Um, yeah. So, I mean... If there's a new approach um, to a drug development program that seems exciting because it's different, independently verifying that, you know, the basic research, the discovery level, academic research that these assumptions were built upon are sound. Um, and paying a very specific attention to the cases that a company will compare their potential drug product to because a lot of the time they're presented as apples to apples, to apples saying, for example, this drug was approved and uh, uh, was approved with an NDA in 2017 for seizure disorder. Um, but when you actually look at it, it's, it's not a comparison, uh, an apples to apples comparison. It's a different drug. It's a different uh, target. And so just 
making sure that, you know, there isn't a lot of grandiose assumptions being made about the new technology. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. So we've covered three out of the four. We've covered the team, the intellectual property, the scientific foundations. Now the last, not last but not least, I guess, like product development, strategy, operations. This is kind of the final category. Um, there's a lot that you could talk about here. And we kind of hinted at the beginning that this is where a lot of failures can happen, even if like the scientific foundation is good. Um, so maybe one thing to start with is like, how much of a plan do you want to see in place for the long run? Or is it okay for companies to kind of have this agile mindset where they're like, well, we're just going to like let the data guide us. You know, we're not really going to say specifically that we're focusing on this um, indication. We're just going to run like a bunch of assays and like pick whatever, you know, the best, most promising one is. And, oh, in terms of commercialization strategy, hey, like we're going to cross that bridge when we get there. Like, is that kind of an okay attitude to have at the beginning? Or do you really want to see detailed plans going, you know, three, five years into the future? Yeah, I, I'm a little bit of a stickler for this, I think, because this is where I've actually had my most experience from an operations perspective in like I've actually been doing this myself on the company side so I when when it's too agile and less structured and there isn't a lot of planning involved I see a yellow flag and I mean I have to be a little bit forgiving everyone has a different style around technical due diligence because if you're an early stage company you actually need resources to to plan you actually need to hire people for that planning work too. So it's a bit of a catch-22. However, um, if a company has been raising for a long time and they have this agile mindset, I'm going to assume that they've pivoted their strategy quite a bit. And so the pivot element of adjusting to market conditions is one thing, but completely jumping onto something new every couple of months is a huge problem. Um, and you know, so, it's funny. I, I want to just interject. Real quick. Yeah. I don't think I told you this, but one of the companies that we were looking at lately, I was texting a few other investors and I was like, Hey, what did you think of, uh, those guys over there? And the other investor wrote back, Oh, you know, it, they were really nice, but I just didn't really like their focus on this thing. And I was like, their focus is not on this thing. They're doing something else. And they're like, oh, well, back when I talked to them, they were doing something different. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you, you definitely see like lots and lots of pivots and it's hard to know what to make of that, right? Like, I guess it's good that they're not just continuing to beat their head against the wall when something's not working, but it also means that things weren't working, <laughs> which is yeah. not necessarily good. There needs to be evidence that the people who are running the show have a history of effective project program portfolio management, a history of execution. Um, and like, if you go on my website, I even write like smack dab in the middle. Why do some initiatives remain in like a perpetual state of incompletion? And this is the biggest theme that I've seen in my seven and a half years of consulting. There's a, almost a hesitancy to spend and do because you get stuck in this planning loop, which is contradictory to what I said at the beginning, where like, if you're too agile, you might end up an idea and brainstorming mode all the time. So having a semblance of how these companies are managing their portfolios, how they're controlling the allocation of funds, how they are modeling different scenarios should, you know, for whatever reason, one project fail, those types of strategic documents and planning tactics need to be on paper. There are a lot of teams that discuss it very generally and hyper in a hyperbolic manner 
just, you know, in a room. But unless they're somewhere, it's almost as if you can get amnesia and forget what you you and your team had agreed to like three weeks before. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, and, and also one other thing too, I think working in an agile mindset with regards to traditional medcam campaigns is great because it's like, you know, innovative and you're, you're not focusing on this like very pedantic and prescribed formula of what you need to do. You're flexible, um, but you need to know how much that's going to cost and you need to have management reserves there for like time that it's going to take uh, if you stop the program and, and start anew. So these, these I think come with ex- management experience, these elements, right? And when you when you talk about having these sort of uh, processes or plans laid out on paper, there are different types of plans, obviously. Like, what are some examples of things that you might want to see specifically? Like, I know one of the things that we've talked about a lot is documents detailing how a company might make a go or no go decision in regards of to progressing a candidate molecule from one stage to the next. Is that one of the most critical things? Are there other things that you want to see as well? Yes. In terms of like very, very clear documentation of a strategy or thought process? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, like a portfolio breakdown, uh, any set of active projects, how the resourcing aligns. So like how your team aligns with what projects will be run. So you know who will be managing what. To a certain extent, I know you can't know that at a very early stage, but um, go or no go. You want to see this on paper, basically. Yeah, or on yeah. a PDF. On, on, on PDF, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, for example, if these are frameworks that are continuously progressively elaborated. I don't expect these documents to be static. These are constantly changing documents, but the, the problem is, and I've worked in environments like this where individuals are demanding these documents without actually agreeing on a strategy. So you have to have the strategy first before you can commit to managing these documents. Now, if they're still in a stage at a stage where they're brainstorming on how they're going to manage their strategy then agreeing to alter these documents at a given time every like three months, let's say. Um, but this is this like failure to launch is like a problem that I encounter all the time. I've seen it at least six different times personally. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so seeing that there is almost kind of reassuring for somebody like me who has that experience on the operation side of these companies um, because at least I know that they've been there, done that, and they're not trying their hand at running a medchem campaign or a project from from zero. Um, yeah. So on the, do you want to dig a bit more into this whole idea of the go no go decisions and like what are maybe some valid reasons to make those decisions and what are some invalid reasons to make those decisions? Yeah, that's a great topic to discuss. I think. I mean, once you formally commit funds that you've raised to a project and you are running through your budget as time goes on, you need to have these milestones within your program to ensure that you're meeting criteria that de- not de-risks, but ensures that you're not going to fail. And right. so with something as complex as a drug development life cycle, it's multiple projects, multiple portfolios kind of coalescing and the, the broader areas are, you know, preclinical work and clinical development. If you're trying to run through a whole program like that, you should have these stage gates where you assess the data 
and assess your entire portfolio and your funding situation from a very high level and decide whether or not it's in your team's best interest to continue funding this project. And so um, from the investor perspective, it's like we kind of want to see, all right, they've got these 10 projects they want to run. They're not raising enough money to like run all 10 indefinitely. So we want to know, are they going to be able to, you know, kill their babies basically if they're not performing at these different stages? That's kind of what you want to see there and how they're going to make that determination. And how. And, um, and that they have agreed to. The biggest thing is disagreement on whether or not to end a program. And if it's not documented in some business uh, software program or on your Google Drive folder, that can become a huge deterrent too. Um, but at some point, you have a board who will steer this. Um, and so, I mean, at the very early stage, I think with these high-risk scenarios where everyone's going after the same receptor, what's really innovative and re reassuring um, our plans to maybe somehow utilize the assets in a different manner down the road, um, whether that be for potential joint venture projects or other types of um, R&D initiatives, it could be reassuring that, you know, the team is trying to make the most of what they have, but w within reason, right? So you're saying like in the instance where a program is killed because it didn't meet some set of requirements, that doesn't mean that the whole entire process is lost. We can maybe repurpose this for something else. Maybe we can sell it to someone. Maybe we can JV it with yeah. someone else. That's kind of what you're saying. Okay, so exactly. not only do we want the and we want the criteria to stop the project, we also want some idea of how we can recycle it yeah. so that it's not just sitting there, basically. If possible. I mean, a good example specifically of what, what that could be um, are material transfer agreements for your really early stage unoptimized asset um, with other companies that have really unique models that are validated, which they're screening for, that you don't have the capability to continue on with on your own, but that, you know, maybe you could share with somebody else, especially for these super, super unique uh, classes of compounds that are not tryptamines, phenethylamines, or, you know. <laughs> it, it is interesting that it's not just about like the process. It's more like if you don't have the process, then the people will start bickering and that's what causes the failure, not the, the data itself. Yeah, very, very interesting. I think sometimes for people that are super quantitative, it can be hard to realize that that is like the failure mode, that the people just start fighting amongst themselves about what to keep alive and what to kill. And that is actually the thing that kills the program, not bad science. Well, yeah. And also I think too, you can, you, there's obviously situations where the science and the programs can be run in a sloppy manner. Like mm -hmm. there are very specific requirements for an IND filing that you have to meet. So of course I'm checking for that too. Um, but you know, when teams bicker, the, the problem is everyone is kind of right and entitled sure, to their opinion. So it gets very difficult, uh, especially if, you know, you have a disagreement between a commercial and a, a technical team. Yeah. Um, another thing on sort of this product development strategy operations thing, this is something that we've kind of talked about a bit, but, um, a lot of these companies, believe it or not, don't actually do their own synthesis of chemicals and they don't run their own assays. They just kind of like hire out to CROs or contract research organizations. And you've talked about the importance of like checking the work that these CROs do. Um, can you speak to that a little bit 
And what does it mean if a company is sure that they don't have to check their CRO's work and that they're super confident that their CRO is doing everything they say they're doing? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's pretty cool that some companies are able to advance drugs without actually having to do any of the research themselves. So don't get me wrong. I think utilizing CROs and operating in a very hands-off manner can be quite powerful if you have a good strategy and management team. But like the problem is, so for example, um, a CRO would be used more on the preclinical side when you're trying to run assays to see if this is a hit. But then you also have to work with uh, CMOs or CDMOs to ensure that when you do have your hit and your lead is optimized, that from a manufacturing perspective, these can be synthesized properly on mass and within uh, a framework that's acceptable by the FDA. And so I've seen and, some... Sorry, just to cut you off, but like CRO, okay. contract research organization, yeah. CDMO, that one means... So it's like contract manufacturing organization or Got contract di like distribution manufacturing okay, organization. Okay, okay. So basically, same thing, just at a bigger scale. Well, it, they're they're more on the synthesis side and formulation side. So when you're uh, you have to run your API development concurrently with your in vitro and in vivo investigation, and so the FDA isn't just looking for your scientific data. They're looking to see that you have the wherewithal and have already contracted out the big organizations that can manufacture this when it, you need to do clinical trials and when it becomes a drug. Because scalability is a problem, which sure, we could talk sure. about too. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. But what you, you were telling me of a very specific case, I think, where someone, I forget if it was the assay that was done incorrectly or if they said that they had synthesized the chemical and then it turned out to not be the chemical or something. Yes, yeah. exactly. So that was um, with a CMO. And so actually there's something else to mention there too. The, the integrity of the samples can be easily compromised because the analytical standards of some CMOs in different countries aren't the same. And so, for example, you could be running an assay um, using these research chemicals. Research chemicals, and this is the scenario I was speaking of, are lower grade than what you would go to a CMO for. So they're not synthesized using like they're not meeting a certain criteria that you would have to if you go to a CMO for your later stage investigations. But yeah, if you contract out to like a smaller CRO, there is a chance that, you know, they're not actually synthesizing what you hope for them to synthesize. And this happens because research chemical manufacturers worked for some of them before. They are so packed with, with purchase orders and they're so backlogged. They're just kind of like, quick and dirty synthesizing and quick and dirty an uh, analyzing all the time. So what I try to look for are uh, analytical spectra to ensure, especially if it's an obscure CRO that's being used, right? If you look at the analytical spectra to confirm that the compound is what you would assume it to be. But on the other side of the spectrum, the CDMO organization, some of the big ones that are outside of North America, um, have a history of falsifying their analytical data. And sometimes it, it has resulted in catastrophic scenarios where the compounds are compromised and actually hurt humans. So that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> Got but it. Yeah, so at yeah. the very least, what you want to see, let's say the company is using a CRO to synthesize their chemicals in their preclinical stage. You want to see probably 
the contract with that CRO, you want to see the um, certificate of analysis from that CRO. And then you also want to see like a certificate of analysis from maybe another lab, like a third party lab that you send it to, to make sure like, oh, this actually matches what the CRO says that they made for us. Yes. And usually if you're dealing with a major CRO, it's not a big problem, but these smaller CROs, you have to you have to just be a little bit cautious there. You, the last thing you'd want is to sink like 250000 into a program uh, of, you know, simple assays using a compromised research chemical. Yeah. And I mean, just on a high level, um, some we've seen some companies that are like, we're doing everything with the CRO. We've seen some companies that basically have their own lab and are doing everything themselves. Is there anything that can be inferred from one of those strategies versus the other, or are they both perfectly valid depending on the context? If there is a competent lab that is built within the framework of a company and the company is doing all of their work in-house, they have chemists working, you've done the team vetting already, it's safe to say that they they are more capable of being agile than if they were working exclusively with CROs. Um, so for example, like when you're in a, a med chem lab, you have all of these fume hoods where chemists are synthesizing, but then you actually have some of the analytical instrumentation in the lab too. So you'll see chemists going back and forth, checking to see what they've got and making adjustments to their synthetic scheme on the spot. And so when you have CROs involved, there's a time lag. And then of course, there's also a premium and you don't want to keep spending that premium if it's cheaper to make it in-house. But there's obviously a lot of uh, CapEx involved in setting up a lab unless you have a partnership with an academic yeah. group. Yeah, it's funny because I think just to draw an analogy to tech, you know, back in the day, companies used to sort of basically build their own server rooms and they would, you know, do all this. And now everything is done on AWS or Azure or whatever. And it's almost like the CROs are kind of like the cloud providers of the scientific world. But there are some benefits to running everything in-house. And it actually, funny enough, if you read like Hacker News and stuff, you see all sorts of discussions around how some companies anyway are starting to shift in the other direction. They're starting to do more things in-house despite this big trend of moving everything to the cloud that happened over the last decade because people are realizing that it does cost more um, especially as you scale in the cloud and you just ultimately don't have as much like flexibility and control um, as you do kind of in-house. So I guess it's just a trade-off like everything else. Pretty much. I mean, it depends. I, I find that platform companies as opposed to product companies in the biotech space tend to have a lot more work being done in-house. Um, but, you know, I think CROs, if you're running programs and you have a CRO for, uh, in vivo studies, a CRO for ADME studies, um, a CRO for regulatory uh, considerations, it starts to add up. So there are actually some CROs that have entered into the market that have come out of uh, different medchem labs that do the full, like full, I guess, gamut of synthesizing all the way through to pharmacokinetic studies. And I think that's where there's some innovation happening and maybe it might be a little bit cheaper, but in those scenarios, you're mo most likely looking at um, giving away some of the ownership for a master patent because <laughs> mm -hmm. they're right, doing right. everything, right? Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else on that sort of product development strategy side that we want to kind of dig into? 
I feel like we covered a lot of it. We but. covered a lot. All right. So we've got, we've gone through those four steps. We've dug through the data room. There are probably some things that stood out to us. And so then we end up having a, uh, a call with the team that usually lasts an hour. And we go through all of the important you know things that we wanted to get clarity on. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that no matter how long you talk to someone, there are always questions unanswered and there's always some uncertainty. You never really know. And at the end of the day, you have to make a decision whether or not you're going to put money into this company. Um, philosophically, when, when I used to work in the hedge fund world, there was this saying that people would throw around. They would say things like, take care of the downside and then the upside will take care of itself. Basically meaning focus on like mitigating all the risks possible. And then, you know, the upside will just kind of like almost happen on its own, although it's not that simple. Would you say that um, doing technical due diligence on, you know, a biotech company like that, is it kind of similar to that philosophy that I just described where we're really just trying to look for all of the red flags and making sure that we understand what they are and making sure that these, this company isn't going to run into any like common pitfalls and assuming that that's all clear, then we just kind of assume that, you know, the upside is going to work. Is that kind of the way that you think about it? Is it more about finding those potential pitfalls rather than looking for the upside? Like, wh how do you think about that? I'd like to think so. I mean, especially in some of the clients that I've had on the company side, part of me likes to think that I'm bringing a due diligence mindset to the culture, like the way that mm. they operate. Yeah. And so in those scenarios, you do see quite a quick turnaround on like, you know, failing fast, but also like learning from mistakes and picking up in an agile manner. I think I do, I do think that due diligence is about looking for red flags and it's not about being punitive or judgmental more. So it's a way to almost help the team, whether or not you invest. Yeah. I like that idea a lot too. I think it's like a pretty it's a very nice way of looking at things where it's like, we're not here just trying to like poke holes for the sake of poking holes. We're trying to first help us understand, but also hopefully this will be helpful for you too. Um, and just thinking about your business and also maybe preparing for questions from other investors down the road. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And definitely every early stage VC fund in this space and beyond in biotech in general is composed of different people with different experiences. And so the due diligence experience will be different depending on who's conducting it, but also the people in the network and um, like the tips and the suggestions for improving any given company's strategy uh, will be different too. And so having that experience of going out for fundraising, in my opinion, should be seen, although it's really stressful, as a really great feedback session to help really like get a crash course in improving your your company. Yeah. And that is one of the things that we try and do is like, hopefully ask questions that are helpful and don't make anyone feel bad. It's like all about just, um, yeah, hopefully trying to push the ecosystem to a higher standard. Cause I know the ecosystem is something we both like kind of care about quite a lot. So that's kind of the general sentiment and attitude that we try to bring to the due diligence process, I guess. Totally. Yeah. Well, we've been talking for almost two hours, if you can believe it. Um, I can. <laughs> you can? Yeah. <laughs> is there any, I know we had a few things on this. Is there anything else you wanted to kind of touch on or should we just call it a day and maybe do another podcast later? Uh, what, what do you think? Anything else you wanted to make sure the listeners um, take away from this podcast? Um, I just want to say, I guess, anyone who's actively working 
on a discovery program or any kind of, you know, discovery-esque program, biotech-esque program and psychedelics, good for you, all the power to you. And I hope sincerely that everyone is able to find a way to succeed together. I really hope that there's a lot more positive collaboration that happens in the space because we're going to need to start to share data at some point if we want this space to last. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Podcast two, all going to be about open science. <laughs> That's all oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. I think this is the record for a length of time that I've done a podcast and we didn't even get through all the things that we wanted to talk about, which, um, Part of the reason why I like working with you so much is because every time we talk, I learn so much and it feels like it could just be an endless conversation. So I'm super stoked to have you on the Empath team and I'm looking forward to many more podcasts and many more due diligence sessions. Likewise. Awesome. Cheers, Sam. Awesome. Take care.